Well, tonight I want to invite you to turn with your Bibles, in your Bibles with me to Hosea chapter 6. Come, let us return to Yahweh, for he has torn us, but he will heal us. He has struck us, but he will bandage us. He will make us alive after two days. He will raise us up on the third day that we may live before him. So let us know, let us pursue to know Yahweh. His going forth is established as the dawn, and he will come to us like the rain, like the late rain watering the earth. What shall I do with you, O Ephraim? What shall I do with you, O Judah? For your loving kindness is like a morning cloud, and like the dew which goes away early. Therefore I have hewn them in pieces by the prophets. I have killed them by the words of my mouth, and the judgments on you are like the light that goes forth. For I delight in loving kindness rather than sacrifice, and in the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. But like Adam, they have trespassed against the covenant. There they have dealt with treacherously against me. Gilead is a city of workers of iniquity with a track of blood. And as raiders wait for a man, so a band of priests murder on the way to Shechem. Surely they have committed lewdness. In the house of Israel I saw, I have seen an appalling thing. Ephraim's harlotry is there. Israel has defiled itself. Also Judah, there is a harvest set for you. When I restore the fortunes of my people, when I would heal Israel, then the iniquity of Ephraim is uncovered and the evil deeds of Samaria, for they work falsehood. The thief enters in. Raiders ransack outside, and they do not say to their hearts that I remember all their evil. Now their deeds are all around them. They are before my face. With their evil they make the king glad, and the princes with their deceptions. They are all adulterers, like an oven heated by the baker who ceases to stir up the fire from the kneading of the dough until it is leavened. On the day of our king, the princes became sick with the heat of wine. He stretched out his hand with the scoffers, for their hearts are like an oven. As they draw near in their plotting, their anger smolders all night. In the morning, it burns like a flaming fire. All of them are hot like an oven, and they devour their judges. All their kings have fallen. None of them calls on me. Ephraim mixes himself with the peoples. Ephraim has become a cake, not turned. Strangers devour his power, yet he does not know it. Gray hairs are also sprinkled on him, yet he does not know it. So the pride of Israel answers against him. Yet they have not returned to Yahweh their God, nor have they sought him for all this. So Ephraim has become like a silly dove, without a heart of wisdom. They call to Egypt, they go to Assyria, When they go, I will spread my net over them. I will bring them down like the birds of the sky. I will chastise them in accordance with the report to their congregation. Woe to them, for they have fled from me. Destruction is theirs, for they have transgressed against me. And I would redeem them, but they speak lies against me. And they do not cry out to me in their heart when they wail on their beds. For the sake of grain and new wine, they gather together as sojourners. They depart from me. Although I disciplined and strengthened their arms, yet they devise evil against me. They turn, but not upward. 
They are like a deceitful bow. Their princes will fall by the sword because of the indignation of their tongue. This will be their scoffing in the land of Egypt. Amen. This is God's word. Let's pause and pray and ask God's help. Our Father, as we gather here tonight as your new covenant people, those who are on this side of the cross and the coming, the first coming of your Son, we thank you for all scripture and we believe the words of your servant Paul given by the Spirit that all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable So we pray tonight that you would teach us, that you would approve us, that you would correct us, that you would train us for righteousness so that we may be adequate, equipped for every good work. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the call of Hosea is a call to return to the Lord, to return to Yahweh. That is his covenant name as given through Moses to his people. And you may have in your translation, uh, capital O, capital O-R-D, but you know by now, those of you who are in the evening service, that I've been reading from a translation that gives us that covenant personal name, the Hebrew name, um, Yahweh of God. God is calling his people to return to him. His people, Israel in the north and increasingly Judah in the south, have been like an unfaithful spouse, like Hosea's own spouse who was unfaithful to him. And Israel has wandered away from the Lord. Judah in the south is increasingly doing the same. And God is, is appealing through his servant Hosea that the people repent and return to the Lord. Um, one of the things that strikes us about the, the prophets, whether it be the major prophets or the minor prophets, and by the way, those, those phrases, major prophets like Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, or minor, has nothing to do with, you know, better or worse. We maybe think of baseball, the major leagues, the minor leagues, and we maybe are tempted to transfer that over onto the prophets. That's not how it is. All that we mean when we say major or minor prophets is The major ones are big books. The minor ones are small. That's all that's meant. Hosea is as much the word of the Lord and as significant as the book of Isaiah or Jeremiah. And so God is, through the prophets, one of the things that strikes us is how repetitive, frankly, they are. The call to repentance. Um, But we need to heed that. We need to hear the heart of God. And this text tonight is especially personal. The whole passage we have read, God is exposing the fact that Israel and Judah's sin is very personal. It is against him, and he is offended. Verse 4, what shall I do with you, O Ephraim? What shall I do with you, O Judah? God is not at a loss. Uh, he, is, he is not throwing his hands up in the air. The, this is expressing the fact that God is deeply offended, deeply personally offended by the actions and by the heart of his people. And sadly, the, the, the church today, somehow in our day, we've come to the place where we think that the gospel of grace through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ 
somehow means that we can no longer offend the Lord. Uh, somehow that um, it, it's, it's kind of like an easy pass. And every time you sin, it's, you don't have to do anything. You don't, it's just, it's all taken care of somewhere off, somewhere. You know what I'm talking about, easy pass. You know, when you go on the interstate and you, some of you have, some of you still pay with a dollar bill, I know. And, and uh, others of you maybe have that easy pass and you just zoom right through the, the hooks at toll booth there. Well, uh, the church today maybe thinks that sin's kind of like that. Now because of the gospel, um, God doesn't really get offended anymore. It just goes on a, a report and somebody takes care of it in heaven. <laughs> but not so. God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And yes, abundant grace is available through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Yes, our sins are washed and we are cleansed. But God is still who he is. And the church and individual believers can still displease and seriously offend the Lord. So tonight, I want to divide our passage into three sections. First, we find in chapter 6, verses 4 through 9, that God is offended by Ephraim and Judah's heartless worship. Heartless worship. That is, they, they are offending God by thinking and assuming that God is willing to receive rote, routine, heartless worship. This is what they're going through. Uh, their, their love is, is, is really not real. Verse 4, what a moving and, and sad image. Your, your loving kindness, that is that word, that Hebrew word hesed, that's the covenant love of God for his people. And their hesed, their covenant love in return for their God, is unlike God's hesed, their hesed, their love, is like a morning mist. One of the, the privileges we have uh, living up on the hill where we do is uh, we get to overlook the uh, Merrimack Valley. And uh, it's, it's, you know, as you, if you ever drive into 393, you know, in early morning um, on a late summer day, maybe as you go towards the fall especially, one of the things that will strike you, of course, is that fog bank in the early morning that will be so thick over the Merrimack River. Uh, growing up, going to school, we drive from Loudoun into Concord every single day, and uh, it was one of the things that just always struck me. It'd be sunny at home when we left the house, and as we were driving down 106 and 393 into town, boom, there'd be this massive fog bank. You'd go through it, and you wouldn't even know the sun was out. But sure enough, that fog bank over the Merrimack River uh, when we see it from our house or from whatever vantage point you see it, it will surely dissipate as the day goes on. It won't last very long, maybe an hour or so, and then it will go. And that was what the love of Israel and Judah was for God. It was, it was maybe there, but it really had no, no staying power. I'm deeply concerned about this in my own heart and in the heart of the church in our day. We are very fickle people, and um, we are tend to go from thing to thing to thing. And, and our love for the Lord, unfortunately, can be like that fog bank over the Merrimack River, just in the morning, that mist which goes away early. You know, it's the image also, verse 4, the dew which goes away early. The, especially this summer, we've had, uh, we've had quite a few mornings with a heavy dew on the ground, with the humidity as, as high as it's been 
But with the days, with the sunshine, boy, that dew doesn't last very long. May God give us a love which stays and which is constant. So God's offended by that. He doesn't think that's okay. He's, he wants to be loved by his people. In Deuteronomy chapter 11, verse 1, God had said through Moses, You shall therefore love Yahweh your God and keep his charge, his statutes, his judgments, his commandments all your days. You shall love him, the the chapter goes on to say, with and serve him with all your heart and with all your soul. A repeated theme of the law. The law of God given to his people was never heartless. It was always to be in obedience that was from the heart, a love from the heart. The call of God is that we love him, not merely that we go to church, not merely that we would be right in our doctrine, though we should be right in our doctrine and we should go to church. But all of it is, at the end of the day, unacceptable to God unless it stems from however small but sincere a love for the Lord. So God is offended by Ephraim, Israel, and Judah's heartless worship. They're going through the motions, but there's little or no heart in it. They, they know they have to worship Yahweh, so they do as little as they can to get by. And um, God says in verse 6, I delight in loving kindness rather than sacrifice and in the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. That's the verse that Jesus quotes. What God wants, it's not saying that God doesn't want sacrifice or worship. God's the one who commanded sacrifice and worship. It's not saying that he doesn't want burnt offerings. He's the one who commanded burnt offerings. But his point is, he never wanted shallow worship. He never wanted just checking off the boxes. He always wanted heart worship. You know, it's interesting, uh, particularly evening worship services. Um, I've said many times, um, there's a pattern of morning and evening worship. Uh, You can find it in the Psalms. It is good to give thanks to the Lord, to praise uh, his love in the morning and his faithfulness at night. Uh, Old Testament worship, there were morning sacrifices and evening sacrifices. But I've said many times in the New Testament scriptures, there is no thou shalt have an evening worship service. But um, for various reasons we do. But I have to check my own heart from time to time. Why? Why, why do I? I have different reasons. But at the heart of them must be for my own heart. I love the Lord. If, if, if it's not tonight because we love the Lord and we want to see him, then we would be better off just going home. Um, all of our worship must stem from ultimately a desire I want God to know that I love him, however imperfectly, however falteringly. I want him to know I love him. I love him with all my soul and with all my heart. Otherwise, our worship is in vain. God takes this very seriously. Back up to verse 5. He took it so seriously that he sent his prophets. And what a, uh, what a vivid image. God says, I've hewn them or hacked them in pieces by the prophets. I mean, prophet after prophet, it was like when uh, Elisha hacked Agag to pieces. Um, God hacked 
his people to pieces through his word. And that's the hard thing about going through a book like Hosea is sometimes we're feeling the edge. We're feeling when we go out of the service, we feel a little hacked, a, a little hewn. But we should know that that's an expression of God's, not only his offense, but his love. He's trying to get his people's attention. And sometimes, verse 5, his words kill. We should remember that the reading and the preaching of God's word can be deadly. (laughs) And we should be praying, oh God, may your word kill and do violence to every thought in my heart raised up against the knowledge of Christ. So there's nothing, you know, simply sentimental or passive about the preaching of God's word. God takes seriously his worship and so much so that he'll use his word in a violent way to cut away all that is against him and displeasing to him. So heartless worship. God does not want heartless worship. May God help us even this evening, we who are here. We, it's not our responsibility to worry about those who aren't here. We're here. However many there are here tonight, young and old, And if we love the Lord, he'll receive our worship. He'll receive our worship. Heartless worship. May God remove it far from us. Secondly, in verses 10 through chapter 7, verse 7, God is offended by their heedless sinning. Heedless sinning. In other words, they sin, apparently thinking that the Lord does not see them. There's an emphasis in chapter 6, verse 10, down through chapter 7, verse 7, on, on their sin, but what's particularly uh, noted is the God says, verse 2, for example, of chapter 7, they do not say to their hearts that I remember all their evil. They are before my face. In other words, they're, they're worshiping God heartlessly, so they still have an association with God. They still maybe worship Jesus, so to speak, you know, in Old Testament terms. And um, they're still around the faith. They, they're associated with Christianity, per se. You know, if we read that back into the Old Testament. Um, you know, so they're around God's religion, but their heart isn't in it. And then they go out and they live as though God doesn't really see what they do. They, they don't really, they're not really worried about lying, about cheating, about adultery, sexual immorality. They, they live as though God doesn't really see what they look at or how they spend their money or what they do with their words. They, they don't say to their hearts, I, I remember all their evil. They, they act as though God does not see. But God does see. God, God does see. He sees Verse 10, I have seen an appalling thing. I've seen it, God says. And he sees all of their sin. It is, it is before him. And it is ugly, this image of an oven. They just let their hearts um, bake in their sinful desires. They, they become angry. They become, they're just out of control. That's the image there. They're, they're not in control. There's no governor on the, 
on the oven. They just let the fire go uncontrollably. It's uh, out of control, and they are out of control in their sin, and they think it's okay. But God is saying, no, this is, this is far from okay. God sees it, chapter 6, verse 10, as an appalling thing, an appalling thing. He's offended. He's offended. And none of them, he says, call on me, which is the third um, offense against God that introduces in at the end of verse 7 through the rest of chapter 7, the next final theme, prayerless living, heartless worship, heedless sinning, prayerless living. They, they, they don't call on God. They experience all kinds of consequences for their sin, but in their pride, they don't even see it. They Verse 9, uh, the gray hairs are sprinkled on him. What does that mean? That means that the nation's time clock is ticking. The time for Israel's demise, Ephraim's demise, is at hand. Uh, not far away, the Assyrians are going to come and crush them, but they, they in their pride are acting as though they're going to continue on as they have forever. It's their pride, verse 10. The pride of Israel answers against him. And yet, in spite of their, their, the, the reality of, of they are at risk of being run over by Assyria, they have not returned, verse 10, to Yahweh their God, nor have they sought him for all this. They experience trouble after trouble after trouble. They're being pillaged, verse 9, by strangers. They're clueless. They are being stripped of their power, and yet they're not even aware of it in their pride, and in their circumstances, they do not call upon God with urgency. Instead, they go elsewhere for help. Uh, Egypt is always a perennial temptation for Israel to reach out to. They were a powerhouse in the Middle Eastern um, uh, area, And if Assyria was threatening Israel, their temptation was, instead of calling upon God, to reach out to Egypt, of all places, to help them. Remember Egypt, where God brought them out of slavery hundreds of years earlier? Now Egypt, where they were in bondage by this time, was Egypt that they would look to as their God and their Savior. And God is offended by that. And he's not going to allow them to go to Egypt or even to, they even would reach out to Assyria, verse 11. They even are, are in their avoiding of God. They'll even reach out to the most threatening nation, the nation that is most threatening to them at the present time. And God says, I'm not going to let them. I'm not going to let them seek their help in Egypt or Assyria. He's going to thwart it. He's going to, verse 12, I will spread my net over them. I'll bring them down like a bird of the sky and chastise them. Verse 13, woe to them, for they have fled from me. Destruction, they know destruction. God's heart is yearning towards them. Verse 13, I would redeem them, but they speak lies against me. Again, that that emphasis of this whole passage, it's personal. It's against God. It's against Yahweh. Their heartless worship, their heedless sitting, and now their prayerless living 
Verse 14, they do not cry out to me in their heart. When they wail on their beds, they are in pain. They are experiencing the consequences of their sin. They're experiencing the harvest of, that they have sown, the sin they have sown. They are in pain because of the consequences of their sin, and yet they do not call out to God. It is fearful to think what it will take for God to cause the evangelical church to get back to praying together. I say that as one, I, I, God have mercy, I, I need to be praying more. But generally today, the prayer, at least here in the United States, I'm sorry, the church in the United States, aren't we characterized generally by prayerlessness? At least as churches, we've got things to do. Places to go, people to see. We can do just about anything and everything except meet together to cry out to God. It's not good. Um, You know, it's not good. Not calling out to God and not praying is a sign of pride, of self-sufficiency. And worst of all, God takes personal offense. Because we're living as though we are his people, and yet we're not giving him the honor and glory by calling upon him in prayer. May God grant us a spirit of prayer increasingly in these days. And notice what God wants, verse 14. He wants a cry that originates from the heart. It's it's one thing to just say a prayer maybe before the dinner, and you you should... And uh, it can honor God. I'm not saying that every time you pray over a, a burger that it should be this impassioned, heartfelt, you know, crying out to God. God is honored by some of our routine prayers. But if our routine prayers become that's all there is and there rarely is any angst or any heart or any pathos, any longing in our heart and our prayers then we are in a, in a bad place. And I think all of us know what that's like. And so we're humbled by this passage, and we pray that God would grant us a fresh spirit of supplication, a spirit of prayer. They do not turn, verse 16, they turn rather. So in their troubles, they turn but not not upward. In other words, they look just about everywhere for solutions to their problems except stopping and praying. Again, I'm, I'm personally humbled by this. I mean, how long do I have to go in life? How long will it take me? I hope I'm learning. But how frequently, if I'm in a time of trouble, I'll start first maybe talking to my wife or talking to someone else because I want to unload or share my heart instead of first going to my God and my Lord. And so Ephraim, Israel, and Judah are not alone in this temptation to prayerless living. We can live this way as well. So what do we do? This is, a, again, a, a, this whole section is heavy because God is rebuking Israel and Judah, Ephraim and Judah. For their heartless worship, their 
sinning heedlessly and they're living prayerlessly. Well, we find the, the positive, what, what can we do? And it's, it's a repeated call, and we're going to come back to it again and again. But turn with me in closing to chapter 10, verse 12. God is not done with Israel and Judah. Uh, he is going to rebuke them, correct them. And one day he is going to save a remnant and he will train in chapter 10, verse 11, Israel to receive his yoke. Interesting, uh, Jesus's words, come to me all who are weary and heavy laden. My yoke is easy and my burden is light. Isaiah prophesied about that and here, Again, there's a prophecy that one day Israel will receive the yoke of the Lord, Judah as well. But in particular, verse 12, here's this this little beautiful call. And again, a theme of rain. Interesting, at the end of the last section I started with tonight in chapter 6, verse 3, that was a call to seek the Lord. And God used the image of of God causing rain to come upon hardened, dry soil. And here again in chapter 10, verse 12, God says, Sow with a view to righteousness, reap in accordance with loving kindness. That's that Hesit word. Break up your fallow ground. Indeed, it is time to seek Yahweh. It is time to seek the Lord until he comes and rains righteousness on you. It's time to seek the Lord. We need to seek him privately, personally. We need to seek him publicly as a church. This is more important right now than anything else our church could be concerned with, is that we together seek the Lord and pray. And so in a few moments, we'll do that. But in closing, let us heed this and be warned. Let us examine ourselves. What's the nature of my worship? Why do I go to church? Do I go to church just because I go to church? I know kids, sometimes it can be tough because you say, well, I I go to church because my mom and dad say I have to. But even you kids, God's asking you to consider, why do you go to worship? Why do you do that? We love to go to worship because of fellowship. That's not bad. We love the saints. I like to come to church because I like to see you. Most of you. No, I like to see you. And, uh, and that's a wonderful thing. And we enjoy sweet fellowship. And that's a gift of the Lord. And that, that's a good and holy reason. Um, we go to church, we say, to be fed and to be encouraged. And, and that's good. And we need to be fed and we need to be encouraged. But we ought to go to church first and above all other reasons to express to God, Oh God, I love you with all my heart, with all my soul, and with whatever strength I have. I love you, and I want to lend my praise, my honor, with my body, with my mouth, with my mind, to you in the public worship and the assembly of your people. May God give us a heart to worship him and to love him. Let's pray. And so, God, that is our prayer. 
Um, We are convicted by this portion of your word. We're confronted. Uh, We fear at times with the reality of, of rote routine worship. Pastors can be guilty of rote, routine preaching. Um, We pray that to the extent, whatever extent that may have been true, you'd forgive us. We don't want to offend you, O God, and to the extent that we have, we call upon you to forgive us. It's a serious thing, and we want you to not be offended by us. We, We want you to be pleased with us. We want you, Lord Jesus, head of this church, to to be pleased and to look upon us with your favor. So help us to take heed to ourselves. We, again, we can't, we can't do anything about other people's lives, but we can take heed to ourselves. And so tonight we pray, grant us to have a certain fear of you that we would, we would fear sinning. Help us to accept the fact that you see all our ways May our lives not be like an out-of-control hot oven, but may they be steady, like a, like a wood stove in the dead of winter that is, is loaded with wood and burning slow and steady. May our lives be like that. May our lives be an offering of true love to you. And may our lives and our church be characterized by calling upon you, turning from pride and self-sufficiency, and earnestly calling upon God, who alone can help us and who alone can build his church. Hear our prayer because we offer it up, O God, in our weakness, in the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen.